Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The Get Rich Slow Club podcast is a collaboration between Tash Etchman from Tash Invest and Anna Christina from Perla. The Get Rich Slow Club acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land we record on. From coast to coast, across land, waters and communities, we pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging. Any advice is general and does not consider your financial situation, needs or objectives. So consider whether it's appropriate for you. Welcome to the Get Rich Slow Club podcast, where we take you from beginner to confident investor, where we can teach you everything you need to know about investing. So come get rich slow with us. Evan Lucas is the author of Mind Over Money. He's a leading economist and an experienced media commentator and financial educator. His biggest learning comes from his time working in markets, investing in finance. And he acknowledges that our individual behavior towards money is always changing. In this episode, we talk about bonds, girl math, reasonable versus rational decisions, and how to deal with the rising cost of living. We're excited to have Evan on the show, but before we get started, let's share our money wins and losses of the week. Tash, do you want to go first? Yes. I went to the movies for $9, which is pretty cool. Nine uh, bucks. That yeah. is old school. Yeah. Like, where did you get $9 tickets from? On Shopback. They right. had, if you used it with a Westpac card, you got $9 movie. It was $10 movie tickets plus a dollar of cash back. So that was pretty cool. That $9. Sounds, that sounds like the price that Anna and I would have got back in the teenage days. <laughs> it was yeah. back when I was like 18, <laughs> what, seven years ago, and you could go on Tuesdays for $9. Oh. So it's pretty cool. That's and then more... I bought a $9 Coke Zero to make up for it. So yeah. <laughs> Those drinks are so expensive. Yeah, but you have to do it. Yeah. What about you, Evan? So my money one was going to the AFLW with my daughter. $10 entry. Go and do it. If you are out there, go and see it. It's fantastic. The girls' sport is wicked. She got a free football, free face painting, all included in this 10 bucks, which was actually for me. She was free because she's five. And then we also got a whole day of entertainment, three hours, I did buy her an ice cream, like a proper, like Mr. Whippy. How much was it? Seven bucks. So that blew it slightly <laughs> over. So if I go look at Tash, we're the same, right? 17 bucks, 18 bucks. I'll take that for and three hours of entertainment of a child. Yeah. Amazing. 
How much is normal AFL games? I think the men's standard entry will be normal. About, gosh, isn't they normal AFL games? Men's games. Men's yes. games is thirty five. I want to okay. say like so. The advantage of the women's game, I think they've done the right thing, is that they've gone back to traditional at the ovals of the clubs. Mm-hmm. So you now, you know, if you're playing for. Carlton, it's at Icon Park, or if it's North Melbourne, it's at Arden Street, or if it's in Perth, it's at Subiaco. All those kinds of traditional. So it's bringing the community back. So it's working for them. So the the crowds are up. Fortunately, viewership's not, but we'll get there. Amazing. What's yours, Anna? Uh, in comparison, I have a money loss, oh. but it, but it's in the same vein. Uh, we went to the zoo, and kids are free, which feels like a win. But then for two adults, guess how much two adults at the zoo cost? I know this because I have the membership. So I, you have a membership? Yeah, yeah. And the reason the membership works is because it's $125 for the year for the membership. And you go four times, right? Or oh, no, it's endless. It's endless to any yeah. zoo in the country. <sighs> so you would have paid, is it 37 or $42 per person? 92 total for two people. Bingo. Wow. Oh, so I love how well you know the prices. So that's why. It's brutal. That is a loss. I agree with that. But if you work it out, as soon as you go to the zoo three times, yeah. you are up. And for us, we go there all the time. Yeah. That's why I said four times because I think I was doing the math about how many times are you actually yeah. go to the zoo. But yeah. it's any zoo too. So, yeah. I mean, we're always doing this in Melbourne. So if you go out to Hillsville, if you go to Werribee, We've used it transferring up to – we've been to Adelaide Zoo with it We've been, and it's free for that because it's transferable. Taronga Zoo in Sydney, have done that one too. How many times have you been in the last year? 15. Wow. Okay, money win. That's a money okay. win. Yeah, so for me That's it's why a money I had to loss. Stop and count. Yeah. I was like, <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, amazing. We, we cheat. We, we live within a five-minute drive. So if the kids are going mental, we're just like, that's it. Let's go to the zoo. And then on top of that, food was around $160 for oh. the day. So – Big money loss in comparison, but... But a fun day out, I hope. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely. I I have to say it was a good day because it's such a money loss, but no, I I was actually quite impressed by the gorilla. Gorillas, they're so cool. They're amazing, aren't they? So I haven't been to a zoo in ages because they feel depressing, but the one we went to was the Werribee one, and that one has like a safari, huge So you would have seen all the the rhinos out there as well. Yeah, the rhinos too. Wow. And it didn't feel depressing. You know, when you go to a zoo and you feel depressed or an aquarium and you're just like, oh man, those penguins look so sad. Like this is, this was not the case. So I walked away feeling, feeling positive. Vindicated for my money spent. (laughs) Amazing. All right. Well, now that we've talked a lot about outings, um, let's jump in. So, Evan, so much of investing in personal finance is emotional, psychological, and behavioral, which I assume is why you called your book Mind Over Money. Um, We do things with money that's not always logical. How can we- I call it reasonable. Yeah, reasonable. There you go. How can we as investors balance all of these ideas? So- why I did this, I mean, I've been working actually as my vocation for 19 years in, in markets and stuff. And you're right. So I grew up on hardcore economics, hardcore markets, rational thinking. And that's rubbish because let's be honest, the reason I use the word reasonable is that we make constant decisions that make sense to us. And that should actually be the answer because, again, if you went the full economic rational decision, you'd be a robot and nobody's a robot. And not only is nobody a robot, you've got to give yourself credit for making the right choice. And why I say it's the right choice, we just talked about our money hacks and what we had for that. In the end, your money loss, Anna, I would argue is actually a rational, reasonable decision because the memories that have been created for your two kids off the back of going to Werribee Zoo is priceless. Yeah. 
right? So the loss financially is probably offset by the emotional and the effort and the belief cost that you've put into it. So the reasonable decision has been made. So why I also say that is that in the end also, all that economics is is the collection of the three of us and everybody else listening and watching doing things in a collective way. That's all. And, and so we've made psychological choices to do what we do as a group or individually or how Anna sees money compared to how Tash sees money or how Evan sees money compared to Tash and vice versa and all, all of those above because we're all individuals. We're all – my argument I always say is this, you are you, I am me, and we all have differing views. We're all different ages. We're all different stages of life. We all have different points of view, and that's all the answer to that because what I'm very strong at with the book as well, people always ask, how do I fix this? I went, love to give you that answer. Can't because I don't really know you but I can give you examples. I can guide you in the right way. But in the end, because you are you, your reasonable decision is going to be what's best for your money, for your family, for whatever that situation is. I love the saying you made the best decision you could at the time with the information you had available to you because I find a lot of people get stuck with the what's the right decision or the wrong decision or the best money decision. Yeah, and I think on that, that's a perfect point, is particularly in this day and age, the idea that you can go online and find the answer to everything is probably clouding people's judgment in the end. And, you know, most of the information in finance, particularly personal finance, is this is what you should do. And my argument straight back to that is that, well, that might be what they do. doesn't mean it's right for you. Mm-hmm. And it depends on so many more factors. Yeah. And so you, you're a great example, Tash. Like you know what's right for you with regards to how you deal with your personal finance. You're very, very savvy with moving around cards. You're very savvy around moving around your money. And that's why you work so well in terms of what you do. But again, as you've said, and I've seen you do it, you said to people, that's what's for me. Make sure you shop around. Make sure you understand. Make sure you get the education that is that the best thing for that person. And I've heard you and seen you do that. Yeah, thank you. I think it's really hard to look back and see the years that have gone into where I am now and the decisions I make now is the seven, eight years I spent learning about this stuff. But it's very, very different to a family with kids or older people or like someone in a different age bracket completely. Yeah, and that'll come. And then, I mean, mm-hmm. when you and I were doing our Russ talk at Brisbane, there was a gentleman that came up to me and said, is what I've done wrong? And he told me what he'd done. And it was basically that, you know, he was in his mid-20s and he was worried that he hadn't saved enough because he was actually giving himself experience. And my response was said, no, it's not wrong. Yeah, I get that all the time. Like someone saying, I'm 28, am I behind? Because I only have $100,000 invested. It's like, no, of course you're not no, behind. Well, like, there's I'd, no I'd behind. Argue, I'd argue at $100,000 invested that they're bloody long they're way ahead. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's what I'm trying to sort of also talk about with – you know, someone your age compared to someone like Anna and I, who are obviously older than you are, is there's no right or wrong answer. And in the end, your value from those experiences are there. Yes, okay, you probably will have to spend a lot more time, inverted commas, catching up mm-hmm. from compound interest and all of those other interesting things. But there is there is no value ability to talk about an experience if it's in the end to you the most valuable thing you've done. Now, my argument, and I talk about this in the book, and Anna, I know you like this as well, is for me in my 20s, travel was absolutely fundamental to my value and I will never, ever say otherwise. Yes, I could have invested more. Yes, it could have meant that I'd probably reached fire by now if that's what we want to go through. But in the end, I will say the value I got from those years between 20 and 29 are priceless. 
Yeah, I had the same travel period as well before COVID happened. And I think it taught me how to save and budget really well, being able to go out and experience all of those things and having to manage your money in such micro details compared to at home. And that's why value is so important, right? Like what you value might be different than what I value. And therefore we allocate our funds differently, right? And it's easy to look back and say, oh, if only I saved more money or maybe I should have gone on more trips because things things change, right? Our priorities change as we get older too. So it's uh, it's it's difficult sometimes to look back and be like, did I do the wrong thing? But it's easy to do that too, yes. isn't it? Because it's a natural human re- reaction, which is, again, if you boil it right down to the physiology of it, it's flight or fight, right? So that's that's the physiology, the oxytocin, the dopamine releases that come with those discussions. What we've found out is that dopamine's not just a happy drug, it's actually a negative drug as well, which is that it's closely affiliated with memory triggers for bad emotions, which is really fascinating That's to find. Interesting. Yeah. That's interesting. I didn't hear this either. Yeah. 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 So they've only just discovered this. And the reason I know this has been a lot of research that I've done from a book on this is that they're starting to find that dopamine has much more impact on you than what they originally thought. It is still absolutely fundamentally the one that everybody knows, which is that dopamine is that pleasure hit. It is that, you know, that expression of, you know, absolute pleasure. So that's why they say, for instance, with the keeping up a Jones's effect, it's not the actual buying, it's the anticipation buying Mm. that they actually find is when you have the highest level of dopamine in your system. There's like planning for a trip, you know, that happiness level. Like you just, you get more excited about it. And then once you go on that trip, it's It's maybe- It's even further back than that. That pair of shoes, that shirt, that dress, whatever it is, the anticipation is actually better for your dopamine levels than it is of actually buying. It's why they call it buyer's remorse. Because what they're now starting to find is that Dopamine also causes frontal lobe triggers for negative emotions, which is really weird. It's not what you think. And there's still a long way to go on that principle. But why that comes to money, and getting back to your point, is we are geared to something that is so visceral that has huge amount of value inverted commas attached to it. I mean, money is hit realistically, it's a construct of IOU that when you lose it, it is such a big thing. It's like thinking about it. If you lost food as a, a stone person, that loss is acutely felt. Money is just the new version of that for this day and age. And that, that loss therefore leads to negative emotions, but it also leads to negative behaviors because you try and get out of negative loss. So talking about your wherever trip, yeah, yeah. Um, you can justify that, right? And But there's a loss in the back of your head going, there's so much money and you will dwell on that for weeks. Yeah, yeah. Instead of the amazing girls the amazing that we girls saw, right? The amazing girls you saw or the fact that the kids got to go and see rhinos and the lioness thing there. It's the only place I think in the Southern Hemisphere, in a, sorry, in Australia, you can see a cheetah. Oh, they're, they're gorgeous. They're <laughs> so, we're so, going to have to take you to so, yeah. right, so, so this is like, so that's the visceral thing we're talking about here. We are dwelling on one thing and money is that. And it's huge right now, right? Because the cost of living has gone up, interest rates, people are really feeling it when it comes to their housing, to their mortgages, their rent. So what are the things that we can do to kind of, I guess, mitigate that loss or navigate that? Do you have any thoughts? I do. I mean, again, you're now asking me my other job, which is me being my pure economics thing and, and, and it will end, right? So just as interest rates have gone up at the speed they have, they can come down just as fast. So, and I think we forget in time that that's actually what happens. In fact, on the way down, they come faster. So again, we go back to COVID. It was sitting, the cash rate was sitting at about 1.25 to 1%. At one point there, they had 36 months in a row. They didn't move interest rates. Yeah. All right. So between 2017 and 2018, they didn't move interest rates for 36 consecutive months. I remember trying to talk about it. It was the most boring thing in the world. And so then, nothing's changed. So nothing's yeah. changed. And then- <laughs> 
obviously COVID happened, bang, and they ratcheted it down to 0.1 of 1% almost overnight. It's taken 14 months and 12 interest rate rises, now 13, to get up to it. And now we haven't moved for three months. Yeah. And I suspect you're going to see them hold there for periods of time, up to seven months. What I want to say about all of that, though, it's a really short period of time. Sounds like ages. And this is what we're probably moving towards, which is now over delayed returns. So instant returns versus delayed returns. Interest rates are exactly that. The pressure you're feeling, there is nothing that I can say will help, you know, make you feel better, but I will tell you it will end. And already the, the groundwork is being laid by the central bank that 2024 will be different. And 2024, the discussion around cuts is coming. You can hear it. You can see it. They're giving themselves excuses. China's slowing down. The uncertainty we don't know how much the delayed effect of the cost of living is having. All of those things. In the interim, how do you deal with it? This is where you two are very good at this and where you both come into it with about being smart with your money, which is using things that can reduce your interest payments. Because in the end, I also try and say psychologically, break it up. Principal and interest. Principal is yours, right? All a bank wants is your is their money exactly to the cent back. So every money that you pay them off, the more of the asset is yours. So if you can see principal payment as actually you just contributing to your investment of your house, that's a win. The thing you've got to improve is your interest rate. And what I mean by that, yes, you probably can ring up and get a better interest rate. That's absolutely certain. But you can also reduce the amount of interest you pay. Pay fortnightly rather than monthly because there's 26 week, 26 yeah, fortnights. Pay weekly as well. Weekly. Yeah, weekly over here. yeah. Or just as constantly as you can. Lump sums in, offset accounts. Some people argue they don't work. They do. They mathematically show you that they do. Offset, yeah, of course they work. Uh, do people actually say they don't work? Some people oh, do. Okay, I've heard that one before. Um, some very prominent people. Okay, I have to Google. Say Why? they don't. <laughs> that doesn't make any math sense, but yeah, anyway. <laughs> Correct. Answer. Side note, have you heard of girl math? Yeah. What do you think about that? Oh, I get girl math. Oh, okay. Right. So, so the reason I say that is that, look, girl math is a way of justifying spending behavior, mm-hmm. right? Now, the reason I say it works is that in a partnership, particularly, girl math is great. And the reason I say that is that if you've got somebody that can see discounts, can see right times to buy things, particularly when it comes to essentials, absolutely. Okay. That's a positive take. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So it should be. So why I say that is that, those spenders, those people that have inverted commas, I hate using girl math term because it's a really sexist thing. Yeah, but, I, hate, I hate the um, term. If, you, if, if you've got somebody in your sphere that can actually find value from spending, and what I mean by that is they go, okay, I just found that you know, at Coles, Woolies, that chicken is now $12 a kilo rather than 17 That's a win, mm-hmm. right? Or if they find the apparel they're looking for that you know they need and that you need that is 20% off, then that's again, that's a, it's a win. Okay. It's so, a win when it's things you actually need. Yeah, I look, I get. But, so but, but keeping, that's the pre part, right? Like you're discussing the part that's talked about in girl math, where it's like looking at something in pre purchasing. What I'm seeing a lot online with girl math is the post part, like trying to justify just, the justification of the purchase, and that's the problematic part where yeah. it's like I spent three hundred dollars on a dress, and, and it, it was, was on supposed sale. to be four fifty. Yeah, and- girl math. Made yeah. one hundred and fifty dollars. I don't like it because it's people justifying things they can't afford, and yes. they're not doing the actual math. They're like, "Oh, girl math, haha," which is sexist, and I hate that. But also, just buy things that you can afford first, like instead of trying to justify them. So, do we want to go there? Because I'm going to ask the both of you this question, which is that the two, the three of us sit in, in millennial and Gen Z sort of categories, and the hardest thing at the moment that I have to discuss around that is that unfortunately, those generations have this thing that I 
deserve. Yeah, I struggle with this a lot on TikTok when I hate on Afterpay and people are like, but I deserve that drink or I deserve that dress or I deserve that thing. We deserve nothing. No, no, you have to work for it. And yeah. like there has to be periods of your life where you work really hard for things. Um, you can't just have everything easily. That's where I think the boomer generation is like, what's wrong with these youngins? You know, like we, I had to work for that. And and of course they did. Those houses and those jobs didn't pay as much as potentially now, but there's a huge discrepancy between what was happening then and what was happening now. I was saving for my apartment. I was working 50, 60 hour weeks while at uni, which isn't healthy and you can't do that ongoing. But it was that time of my life where I had to work really, really, really hard to save the deposit. Mm-hmm. And now I see people kind of saying, oh, I don't want a second job. I just want to like, I don't know, have a nice balanced life, but I also want to buy an apartment. I also want to do all this other stuff. And that's great, but you can't have everything all at once. So yeah, that, that there is the compromise. Mm, yeah. That's what you're discussing. That's the compromise. Yeah. What is more important to you? Not the, I deserve to have this now. What is more important? And, and what are you going to do first? Yeah. And and all of that comes back to your question before, Anna, about you know how do you deal with the reasonable versus rational yeah. argument? Yeah. What is reasonable is a very broad perspective, but Tasha's point is right. That is what is more important and what are you going to compromise on? Because again, as soon as you start believing that you deserve now, then all of that crashes together and you you will end up finding, as you said, you can't. Mm-hmm. And then going back to that thing before as well about what to do about the cost of living in the short term, like yeah. you might have to cut back on things you don't want to, or you might have to have a second job just so for the, this next year or two. The fascinating thing about the cost of living is that anybody under 50, and the reason I say it's that, is that if you are 50 and listening to this, you were probably in your teens, early 20s when the last financial cycle like this happened. So that was the late 80s, early 90s. Yes, you experienced it, but you probably didn't truly have the cost of living impact that you are I don't now know, feeling like I haven't experienced yeah, it. Well, neither, yeah, neither have I, right? Yeah. So the reason I highlight that is that for the first time in your life, you're actually having your choices impinged. Mm-hmm. You've always, your entire life, had almost unlimited ability to choose what you want to do, when you want to do it, how you want to do it, with no impingement at all. Mm-hmm. Now you have. And for the first time, it's outside of your control. We don't like not having control. And that's why I think the cost of living right now is is much more visceral, much more loud in terms of how it's been experienced because, again, you can go on social media and talk to the world about it Yeah, because it's something we've never experienced. I mean, until last May, there was 1.2 million Australians that had never experienced a rate rise. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Wow. So, 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 <laughs> yeah. I was speechless. So, yeah. so, so from 2012 all the way through to 2021, rates went one way and that was down. Mm-hmm. Also, Australia wasn't really affected with the last uh, – Global financial crisis. We we had until COVID, we hadn't had a recession since 1992. Mm. Wow. Because because I remember 2007, 2008, I was graduating from university. You're in Canada, right? Yeah, yeah. And I lost my job and all my friends lost their job. And it was scary because you just finished university. You know, you were potentially in debt. You were trying to find a job and you had to like live with your parents. You couldn't live your life. And that really affected us. But I remember talking to people here in Australia who were like, that never happened here. Yeah. So it's it it, it can just, be quite alarming, right? Yeah. It's the first time. And that's the beauty of what we're having a discussion yeah. here is that your experience is different, which is beautiful, yes. right? Yeah, so yeah. exactly what we just said. So particularly for what Tash and I have experienced, we've never had that yeah. until now. You have at least. I mean, I remember the, the GFC for me was fascinating because I was living overseas mm-hmm. but it, and it was affecting the people around me, but it didn't affect me. Because back here, nothing was going wrong. My parents were still doing really well. My friends were doing really well. And all I saw it as was an experience. If it all went to, you know, hell in a handbasket, I could just get on a plane and fly home. Um, yeah. And that's that's how I saw it. 
And that's the difference that, that's so fascinating about right now is that the whole world is experiencing this and finally Australia is catching up to it too. I can't help but think about the idea of zooming out, right? Like this is a little blip on the chart, you know, when you're thinking about the chart and right now we're really feeling it, you know, same with COVID. We really felt it, but it was such a short time and this as well feels very long, right? Mm -hmm. To your point, how many months has have the interest rates been changing? But at the same time, it's probably just a little blip. And yeah, it's really hard to put it into perspective yeah. when you don't know the end date. Like when you look back, you're like, oh, that only lasted a year or two. But now for people experiencing it, you can't see when it's going to end. And when you think about it logically, yes, it will end. We know it will end, but there's no set end date for everyone to look forward to. We hate planning for the future. I like planning for the future. Yes, I know, you, anyway. I know you do. But the reason I say that is it's completely against our nature. Mm. to make a decision or a choice today for the hope that it will come off in the future. We are not geared to that. It is literally make a decision, instant reward. And by that, make a decision, go and buy your lunch, eat it. Mm -hmm. Make a decision about work, work, go home. What we are talking about all the time, the, the three of us, is make an investment decision, make a financial decision, make a choice decision that for the hope that in five years' time it's going to come off, right? We can tell you, and, and you know, the three of us do this for a living, sit here and tell you that you know, the average return of the ASX is on a total returns basis 9.5% over the last 10 years. But when you look at the ASX, it's ugly and, and devious and moves around, all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And five years from now, when you start talking with all those variables, it gets really nerve-wracking. It's why people can not do it. So- Again, delayed returns is something that we just do not like doing. And it's even as simple as like going, okay, am I going to put my money away on a term deposit that can at the moment probably get you for one year, five and a bit percent. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What happens if interest rates go even higher? Yeah. Mm. And like the savings it, account's like 5.65% at the moment. Like term deposits still aren't mm. higher than that. Who, yeah, whatever you want to use, whatever money, money product you want to look at. It's the same with bonds, right? My argument at the moment is bonds are, everybody's saying they're at the end of bonds. Bonds can't ever end. Bonds are the reason why governments work. Who's saying bonds are ending? Who are we uh, listening to? Offsets yeah. don't work. Bonds are ending. Oh, again, you always will listen to the to the extremes, right? And there's nothing better than arguing with the extremes to mm -hmm. tell them that they're wrong. But um, for the longest time, people didn't even talk about bonds. Because like, they I, were like negative. Because they just yeah, weren't worth yeah. anything. Well, yeah. But again, people forget there's so many moving parts of bonds. Mm. Yeah. Um, because they're fixed, what we call fixed interest asset. Fixed interest, the difference between fixed interest and cash, fixed interest has not just the yield component, but it has a capital gains or, or depreciation component. So it's a tradable asset. So what I was loving about bonds over the last couple of years is that some of them were trading as low as $90 to face value of 100 So you were guaranteed 10 bucks mm. because at maturity, you'd get the 10 bucks back. 
and then the yield they were offering you. The like yield was it, like, yeah, tiny, but still guaranteed $10 is pretty cool. But if you're buying $100,000 yeah. worth, it makes a whole lot of sense. Mm. And then getting the yield was just going through the roof. At one point, you could be getting them sort of midway through 2021 or 2022 even at much at 4.5% for a two-year bond. It's money for jam. Yeah, it's interesting because people don't quite <laughs> understand it. It's like, oh, no, let's put that in the too hard basket or the That's shares right. are more interesting to talk and about And then now. the argument comes back is, oh, how do I actually invest in bonds? Well, actually, you can do that. By um, an ETF of them? Yeah, ETFs are one way, but they are open-ended. You can actually go and, and go through some brokers that will let you get into the direct market as How well. do you actually buy a direct bond? So, again, that is broker requirements. So like you, a human broker? Yes, because you will need to have – somebody that actually has access to the direct bond market. So it is there is a market out there. You can technically do it on the ASX, but you have to have a special license. So again, it's it seems expensive, but it's not when you look at it in a larger scale. We're off track. I'm sorry. That's okay. This is great. <laughs> no, bonds. it's great. Like yeah. we, we don't often have the chance to, to dive deep into bonds. Because I don't love bonds, so I don't talk about it. Because so they're so boring, about it. right? Lo- they're so And dull. a lot of people don't even invest in bonds. That was something when I remember when I was first getting into the whole investing space, I was like, you know, the rule of thumb was get the amount of bonds that's your age, you know? So if you're 20, you- That's a cool rule. 20% of bonds. It might be a bit conservative for some people, but it was just a rule of thumb that I that I thought of, and that's how I started investing and continued to think into my later years. Can I just interrupt? Yeah. That's such a North American way of thinking, which I love. And the reason I say that is that because the Australian market is so immature, people, as Tash has asked before, how do you do it, right? Whereas in yeah, Canada yeah. and the US, the bond market over there is almost 10 times larger than- Why? Because it's, it, we forget what a bond is, right? A bond is a government issuing- Yeah. Of debt. And the US has so much more debt than we have. There's yeah. so many more bonds over there. But it's also the largest economy well. on the planet by, yeah. you know, it's almost double China. Everybody talks about China catching up. That's um, great. I was shocked that Germany's economy is still like number four. Really? Random thing I thought. Yeah. I just don't understand how they're still so They're big. the manufacturing hub of the world. Yeah, they do. Yeah. But after, okay, side note, I just realized <laughs> they were up there so high. I mean, again, the argument is should you imagine the UK being so high as it is? The UK sits between five and six. Yeah, but when I think of big economies, I'm like China, India. I guess India is still not that big economy-wise. No. So who's the third? I can't remember. It's an Asian country. Correct. Not Japan right. still. Is no, it Japan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's Japan. Yeah. Still, yeah. By a long way. And this is because they have lots of labor as well. Oh, not just that. They, they are a highly, highly sophisticated, highly technical economy. Like people forget that the Japanese are the most advanced people when it comes to nanotechnology, the most advanced people when it comes to new age technology and energy. I mean, these guys, we talk about hydrogen now. The Japanese have been tying with hydrogen for 30 years. Yeah. Interruption here. I get asked quite often, like Japan ended up going into deflation and their stock market didn't have the best time. How do we know that's not going to happen to our stock market? That's a great question. I will argue both ways. And the reason I say that, you can't know that answer. And the reason I say that is, there are very strong cases both sides, right? So are we too highly linked to China? Are we too highly linked to digging holes in the ground? Mm-hmm. Probably. The advantage that we always get lucky with is that what's in our ground is incredible. And the probability that nickel and lithium over the next half century is going to get larger is clear and as always, lucky that we are, we probably sit in the number one for nickel and number three for lithium on the planet underground. So we will get through it because we are lucky, Mm -hmm. not because of design. So that's the both sides, is that we are too highly leveraged to one nation, being China, but we are lucky from the point of view that, again, the stuff in our ground is incredible and we will get away with it. However, we are not innovating as a nation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? 
and that's a massive problem. So productivity here is a problem. Yeah. We also have a highly concentrated populations in the fact that people just live in the cities and that's it. And we have an infrastructure problem. So that's all part of the answer. I mean, you look at Canada, you look at the US, Europe's not a good example because uh, Europe's a different kettle of fish. But those two nations are landmass massive, mm-hmm. but the infrastructure is already there. They have the populations that can actually sustain changes and they're innovating because they have to. Mm-hmm. I don't know about Canada. I'd say we're, we're, we're quite similar to Australia yeah, you, in terms of economy, right. landmass and population. But you've got better infrastructure. We, Canada does yeah, have better enough. infrastructure. Than, we're all than, on the bo- living on the border and getting around is easy. Easy. Yeah. yeah. Back to losing all your money. Sorry, like you <laughs> Japan. Because this is like, sorry, sorry. No, no, no I feel I'm, re- I'm, I'm hijacking your, your podcast <laughs> no, no, here. I'm really great. sorry. I get asked all the time, like, what happens if you lose all of your money completely? Like what happened in Japan to some people? What would you say to someone to kind of give them a bit more hope that not everyone is going to lose all their money at once? Yeah. Again, so you guys do this all the time and it's the same answer. Diversification is part and parcel of that, mm-hmm. right? So the advantage of the globalized world, and I will always argue this to the nth degree, is that your exposure will not just be to one nation, to one economy, to one product, to one asset class. So again, talking about bonds with Anna before and you know her beautiful idea of buying your age is that you will be exposed across it and an ETF will give you that opportunity to, to buy international ETF mm-hmm. bonds and vice versa. If you were to lose, hypothetically, the scorched earth word of everything was to disappear, um, and I've had this discussion before, the thing you've got to remember is that your what we're talking about here, let's say your liquidity assets were to disappear because that's the argument, right? Mm-hmm. So you would probably have got into that situation by buying other assets that are maybe not as liquid, whether that be a car, whether that be a house, all of the above. That you could probably move on and, and get back to some sort of liquidity access. But again, all of that sort of hypothetical is different. Again, if it was basically the question of the whole world was to liquidate and we had nothing, that would be a different story. And the reason I say that is it would be a conundrum that, would be created through government. It'd be created through the financial system. And the GFC is to some extent an argument for that in that it is actually able to be restarted quite quickly. Again, it would feel instantaneously one of the worst things to have ever happened to anybody's life. And, you know, you would know that better than anyone, Anna, in terms of how you experienced it in Canada. But there's always a positive answer to it. And the reason I say that is that human beings have shown through COVID, through the GFC, through other crises, that they will evolve rapidly and we'll fix that scenario very quickly. I like that. That's positive. Uh, yeah. And look, again, I will sort of say it's a die on the hill moment for me. I'm sometimes too optimistic. And I, I know you have to be optimistic. But though. yeah. And, and so history shows that that's the answer. And the reason I say that is that, again, you go all the way back to ancient Greece, you go as far back as, you know, the Egyptians. Whenever they had crises of flood, famine, plague, they not just evolved, they got better. Yeah, especially looking back at the plagues beforehand, like before COVID and hundreds of years ago when 40% of the population would die in some of these places and COVID didn't affect us that badly. Yeah. Yeah, so worse things have happened. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's a great example. You bang on. You look at middle, you know, you look at sort of dark age Europe, you look at, you know, ancient Rome. They had these scenarios happening every couple of years mm. and they were fine um, and it just made them stronger. I mean, the, the Roman Empire is a great example. Cool. So we will be okay. Invest your money. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and all of the above. Invest your money. Enjoy your money. Mm-hmm. You are not making a wrong decision. Okay. Bad math. Let's call it that. Bad math, yes. <laughs> bad math is a bit different that if you're using your money in a, a way that actually negatively impacts your overall position, then you need to worry because that's part of your question, isn't it, Tass? Which is that if you're spending hand over fist, mm. buy now, pay later, interest-free credit cards, 
personal loans. I'm putting all of my money into one penny stock and seeing what happens. <laughs> That's not for today. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> then, okay, if you were to end up with the you know no money scenario, that's a different point of view. That is that is your behaviour that you need to look at. That's, yeah. that's a bit different. My view on all of this is if every stock market around the world crashes and every single company crashes, there's bigger problems than yeah. your money and it's probably not going to happen. Yep. Uh, and that's that's exactly the point to be having. That that's 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 Armageddon. That's probably let's put you know use the term that it's probably talking about there. And that that's not the most likely scenario. It is, you know, zero point zero five of one percent chart stuff. You're talking really, really dire scenarios. And again, there's reasons to think like that. I know we haven't talked about climate and all that kind of stuff. But again, I'm optimistic on that from the point of view that we forget the world is very good at healing itself. You just look at the ozone layer hole that once upon a time in the mid-90s was about twice the size it is now. Yes, we have a massive problem. But what gets me excited is that we are starting to see that there is an economic and commercial value to climate change, which is fantastic. Yeah, it's exciting. I love the positive take. Yeah. It has to be. <laughs> yeah, so what my question's now for, for both of you is what change in your and how have you changed the behaviour that you have with money? So Anna first. So like your so – no, I know how you have because I've, I've, you know, I've spoken about it with you before. I know you've got an upcoming book and you've written about it in there as well. What, what was it that you found – was the trigger or was it just a gradual thing? You mean in general, like my whole life or what's the time frame that you're discussing? Yeah, let's just go your whole life. And the reason I say that, because I don't believe you can say it's, you know, one thing. It's never, or at least it wasn't yeah. for me. Yeah, it's not, uh, it, it's a great question because you, as as I've gotten older, my philosophy on money or the way I think about money has evolved, right? Like when, when I was in my early 20s, it was living off noodles and, you know, going to school and saving as much money as possible to save to travel because that was my passion, which it sounds like it, it definitely was for both of you. And then that's evolved as I decided that I wanted to do other things. I played roller derby. A lot of my life was around experiences. So I was very good at saving money, but I didn't know the whole investing component. And it was only when I got older that I realized that investing was the part that you can help you get ahead. So I started focusing on that because I came across fire and that was my passion there. And then when I moved to Australia and got a higher income, that was more than double what I was making before. And now it's even more, right? Because as you evolve, you get older. It has been about investing, putting money aside, having security because now I have a family. So that's evolved and changed. And then also just like, how do I future proof myself? And some of that comes down to investing and having money in my emergency offset. And it has, how do I create experiences for my kids so that they can be resilient and learn about these, you know, life lessons, whether it's finance or gorillas or whatever it might be, <laughs> all of the above. So my relationship is, with money has always changed. I've always, I've always come from a positive place. Never have I been in, in debt. So I'm very privileged in that space. But my goals have changed and the, my relationship with money has changed. And it's less about budgeting and more about future proofing my family and myself. Did that answer that question? Yes. That was a very long-winded, but it but it is true. It changes. What about you, Tash? Mine was just like very similar. I started off when I was, I don't know, 16, 17, and I was obsessed with money. And I wanted to save every single dollar and find the best budgeting methods and track everything that I spent. And I started traveling, and I realized you could get a night in a hostel in Asia for $10. So I was like, great, I'm going to save $10. That's a whole night away. As I started working more and more, I kind of got to a point where I was like, money is easy to make if I want it. How do I make it work for me and make it grow myself anyway? And then it kind Can of. Can I interrupt you there? Yeah. Are you now getting to a point where you are starting to make decisions about 
how much money you want to make because you don't have to make as much as you need. What I mean, are you starting to find that you've got to a point where you can pick and choose? Yeah, yeah, definitely now. So I've kind of got my nice base almost where I can kind of make a bit more mistakes. So I've got my apartment already. I have $200,000 invested. Like I'm doing quite well for my age. So I've gotten to the point now where I can be picky. Like I'm picky about what I do for work and how I make money. Like I'm not monetizing this podcast yet. I'm just taking my time with it. Like I don't need to make money in the same way, but I know that I can make money whenever I want it as well. Mm -hmm. And even just having a healthcare background, like it's really easy to get an OT job at the moment if I want one. And I've got that really big layer of security now where I can just be picky about it and see the future things that are coming from it. Can I interrupt and ask a question? Do you ever worry about that? Because that's something that comes up in my household, right? Like at the moment, and maybe it's the whole, you know, the economy at the moment, but the idea of always being able to make money, does that run out, you know? No, I don't think so because I've got insurances set up. So if something really tragic happens, I've got enough to pay off my mortgage and live off my million dollars invested from whatever happens there. Mm -hmm. But no, if I remain healthy, like I can always get an OT job. I saw with support work during COVID, like there was more work than ever before. More and more people are accessing the NDIS. Like there's more funding for that and that's increasing as well. Um, the population is aging. There's going to be so many jobs in aged care in the future. Just being on social media the last few years, there's so many opportunities if you put yourself out there. I've gotten so many job offers. I just feel like I will always be able to make money and I've got kind of enough of a cushion to make like get myself through a few years if I need to as well. Love that. But then it's like that's bad as well because then I'm less motivated to make more money at the moment. So it's like a foot. But is side. that bad? Yeah. Mm. So that's that the the reason I asked that question is you know, you can always climb. So my my expression to that is you are now able to do what you want, when you want, how you want. Yeah, because I've watched my grandparents, especially they like my granddad still works and he's eighty six and he won't buy a nine dollar cheese sometimes. They have arguments over a nine dollar cheese, even though they're quite well off. And I don't want to be like that. Like that's I a want generation to, thing. Yeah, I want to enjoy my money. My parents still as well. They've got these arbitrary goals of what they want to do, but it doesn't translate to anything in the real world. Because the reason I wanted to ask you that question is exactly that point, which is do you know your limit? And what I mean by the limit is that we all have goals. We all have drive and, and strive and by all means keep going with that. But there's also a point where you start to realize that more money is not necessarily to actually make your yeah. scenario better. And uh, I don't have like a goal anymore. When everyone's like, how much do you want to have invested? I used to say a million dollars, but now I don't know. I'm just going to go with it and see what happens. Yeah. Which is a very lucky position to be in. Yeah. What about you, Evan? So I'm a little bit like Tash, but slightly different. Again, I think I've got part of your thought process, which is I think because I'm now in a family scenario where there is that thought, what happens if I was to stop working or what have you? I'm also a bit lucky in the fact that I know that I can probably get work when I want, how I want, when I need. So I'm very, very lucky and I do not take it for granted. I'm also somebody that just enjoys striving and I know that's a good and a bad thing. There's always a part of me going, you could do this more, you should do this. And that's envy. Let's let's call it what it is. And I'm very open with myself about it now. Is that I know there's envy there, but accepting that I have got to a point where I can do what I want, when I want, how I want. I mean, this is a great example sitting here talking with you two. I get to do this because I want to Yeah. at any time. And that's very lucky. So there's a value to that, that I would argue is not something you can put on a monetary term, but you can put it from a point of view of that this gives me enjoyment and that value is much higher than any financial return I can get. Because I'm a bit like you, Tash. I'm lucky I've always been pretty over the top with not just investing but with money. Mm. I know that I'm very lucky and, and I also have a, a partner that's incredible and she is always going to do better than me. So I'm lucky with that too. <laughs> awesome. That was a nice way to finish off. Yeah. Thank you so much for joining us. This was such a great chat. Thanks for having me, guys. It was yeah. fantastic fun. 
Thanks so much for joining us. If you found this episode helpful, please rate us five stars, write a review, or share with a friend. If you're new to investing, make sure to listen to our first 10 episodes. Follow us at Get Rich Slow Club or Tash at Tash Invest or me at Anna Christina. This show was brought to you by Natasha Edgman, who is an authorized representative, 12-99881 of Guideway Financial Services, AFSL 420-367, and Perla, who is an authorized representative, 128-1540 of Sanlam Private Wealth, AFSL 337-927. Knowledge is power, especially when it comes to investing. So make sure you check out our financial services guides and read the product disclosure statement and target market determination for any investments you're considering. See our show notes for more info. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.